Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. And we have a unique podcast today because normally you'd hear our host, Saqib Ali's voice at the start of the podcast, as he's usually our uh, very able and gracious host with a, a plethora of speakers to stop by as guests. But this time, I'm acting as host, Mert Artunga. And he will be the guest for the first time. So we got a, we have a unique opportunity to this time pick Saqib Ali's brain for his knowledge of tennis, which is very underrated. It never gets talked about on our show. He doesn't bring it up himself because Saqib is one of the most humble men I've ever met. But before I go any further and embarrass him further, let me go ahead and say hello. Saqib, hello. Welcome to your slash ours pod, our podcast. Hey, Mert, thanks for doing this and thanks for inviting me to be a guest on the show because usually I've asked questions, but you know, I'll just get the record straight. I'm not humble. I think I just am very good at one thing. I read the room temperature very well. So the moment I knew you, Matt or Andrew, I knew it's better to ask questions than give opinions. So yeah, there, there's no humility there. I, I, I make, I've made a fool of myself many times, but I don't do it on a podcast. So, and I've learned a lot from you. So there's no point for me to give opinions when you are behind the microphone. <laughs> no, but okay. Well, today our topic is, uh, is one where he, uh, where Saki for sure has more knowledge, more in-depth knowledge than I do. And uh, he's followed uh, this, uh, this man's career much, clo- much more closely than I, than I did. And, um, and we're going to talk about Boris Becker and his uh, legacy and his career and his accomplishments during um during his uh, playing years, mostly, and uh, for that, uh, I'm bring, uh, for that the, who who uh, who could be a better host? Uh, who could be a better guest than Sakib to speak to? I don't think anyone can. Sakib, over the years, after after my conversations with him, I've gotten the impression that he knows Boris Becker better than most other people, most other experts out there, and he's followed his career from start to finish closer than anyone else. So, Saki, before I go any further, uh, before we go into the nuts and bolts of uh, Baker's career and what he's accomplished and et cetera, the ups and downs of his uh, 15 or 16 years or so of tennis career, uh, let, me, let me first ask this. How and when did Saki Ali become a Becker fan? Yeah, I think that's the reason we are talking today because uh, tennis wasn't, you know, like you, you were a tennis player. Uh, you probably played a lot of tennis. I was one of the one of those generation of fans that watch on TV, and my father was a big sports fan, and he used to watch a lot of cricket and tennis, and he introduced me and my younger sister to tennis in the Wimbledon '85 Business Weekend. We saw Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert played a three-set final, if I'm not mistaken. We had zero idea what the sport is. My heroes were like cricket players and Bollywood stars at that point, and Tintin, the comic character. And then the next day I was introduced to Becker, you know, a young guy serving aces. And my dad introduced me an unreturnable, unreturnable serve as an ace. And that was very fascinating because you can't tell, you know, we didn't even know what Wimbledon is. We didn't know there were more surfaces. So it was just like a love at first sight as a, you know, as like many young fans today, you know, fell in love with, you know, Sitsipas or 15 years ago for Nadal. 12 years or 13 years ago for Djokovic. You know, that, that's how the sport has grown. And uh, it was very organic, uh, just purely just uh, seeing the aces and this kid diving all over the place and had zero idea what the sport scoring was. And then never saw a tennis match again, I think, till next year's Wimbledon semifinals when Becker took on Henri LeConte. 
And at that time, I remember him from the previous year. And the fandom was started clicking in. I was still a bigger cricket fan, but uh, I remember that's the first match I watched uh, of Becker after that first year. And then I could at least say that, okay, I'm watching a favorite tennis player. And, but, you know, two matches in 12 months don't make you a fan. But, you know, that's how boyhood and fanhood works, I guess. But, Sakib, you know, the, the, there were many tennis fans who've already who've already been watching tennis who had watched plenty of tennis up to that 1985 Wimbledon and even they became Boris Becker fans after that 90, 1985 Wimbledon run a phenomenal run he was unseated and won Wimbledon so it's um, I can only imagine how fascinating he was to watch for you a first time tennis watcher in that tournament I mean the 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 the, uh, the impact must have been quadruple of those who became Boris Becker fans after that tournament who were already tennis fans before that. Yeah, that's I think. So you, I mean your tennis fan your tennis fanship and Becker fanship kind of got a kick start together, I guess. Yeah, I think in a, in a lot of way, right? Um, Becker is tied to a lot of my important milestones, you know, as a you know, because as a fan, you know, you're a geek. You you know, we didn't have the kind of coverage we have today. I was getting my tennis uh, news from sports news in India. So in evenings on radio, we are a radio family because my dad had worked uh, in All India Radio, which is a government entity. So I taught him tennis in a, in a way. Once he introduced me to the sport, I taught him in 87, I learned the tie break myself, how the tie break is scored by watching Lendl versus Cash. So I told him next time we were watching live tennis, which was not till the US Open, when Lendl and Belander played that, you know, that snooze fest of a, you know, four hour, 47 minute, you know, <laughs> you know, let's rally and, you know, and never, the ball never goes out. That match, so I told him that, you know, how the tiebreak is is working. So going back to, yeah, you know, my my source of tennis, like, you know, with Becker, there was a lot of reading, not watching. So we would, uh, we would get more newspapers to, because we identified as a father and son that some newspaper just might have a more ed- latest Reuters edition if Becker was playing, say, in Stockholm, we got Indian Express, and that said that didn't give the Becker or Lendl score. But if we got, say, a newspaper called The Statesman, that had more tennis coverage. And then we would listen to radio news in Hindi and English every evening, uh, following the European indoor circuit and French Open, whatever was going on. And then I would maintain a scrapbook. I was right Becker scores. And if you go to anyone um, in my previous life, which is I call India, like my high school years to first year of college, my neighborhood, my friends. People, when they connected me on Facebook, like decades after, I'll be surprised. I was surprised how many people brought the Boris Becker connection because some of the people just remembered, I guess I didn't have manners. I would always inject Becker in a conversation. You know, that's what fans do. So, yeah, yes. I mean, this is a very, uh, yeah, I'm sorry for giving a very long bit an answer. No, no, I this think, is very interesting. You probably had a poster or two of Becker. In, in, yeah, in poster your, yeah. as well. But yeah, we were, I mean, I was subscribing to weekly magazines, the Indian magazine, and there was a lot of tabloid type coverage. Who's coaching Becker? Who's Becker dating? Who's Becker not dating? You know, and today I wouldn't really care when I'm following tennis. You can find out who a guy or a girl is dating. But that time it was hard to, distinguished the tabloid coverage from the real coverage even mainstream journalists were focusing uh, on guys like Becker and Villander and Edberg's lives and a lot of information was received through reading material and for the first three four years of my my fandom till 91 we only were exposed to semis and finals of Wimbledon and French Open 
and sometimes the semis of US Open, which your first US Open semi was 88, I believe, which was live in India. So everything that I know about tennis was imagination, reading news and seeing pictures. Yeah, that's and, fantastic. <laughs> I think you've actually summarized the essentials of many, many people who've tried to follow tennis back in the 80s. You know, we depended on, we depended on the, the occasional broadcast and the monthly magazines and so forth. But luckily back then, tennis would make the main news, main sports news. Uh, there would be some highlights. Uh, it doesn't happen so often today. It's more of a niche sport today, I feel like, uh, from back in, back in the 80s. And I think that's because, uh, because of characters like Boris Becker, who, who kept uh, tennis in the forefront in the late 70s in, uh, into, the, into the 80s and even into the early 90s. But uh, let me, my, next, my next question, I guess, would be, okay, so you started, you started getting in, uh, you, started, you first saw him in 1985 Wimbledon, which is his uh, career-making moment. But uh, Boris Becker, in fact, uh, started playing pro tournaments in, in 1983 when he was super young. And uh, I guess it, you know, even though he was unseated in 1985 when he won in Wimbledon and um, and he bursted out into the in, into mainstream uh, sports in every way, there must have been signs prior to that Wimbledon where he started showing, uh, you know, showing signals that uh, that he started giving signals that he could be something special. And then I've oft, often wondered. Um, I've talked to various people, but I think you would be the, the one who'd be able to give probably the most cogent answer to this. When did it start uh, clicking for, uh, for Becker exactly? I mean, was it the, the 1984 Australian Open? This doesn't get talked about. This doesn't get talked about at all, in my opinion. You know, in the Australian Open, which was held in December back then or, or in November, I believe, in 1984, end of the year. Uh, Boris Becker did reach the quarterfinals and he beat some very tough players in the first four rounds, Guy Forger, Mayot and them. Or, di or did it start clicking for him in, the, in Queens when he won a couple of weeks before Wimbledon? Or did it actually just all, all come together during his Wimbledon run from one match to the other? What's, what's your opinion on that? Uh, this, is a, this is one of those questions. You know, I'll, I'll rely on my knowledge of, you know, today or recent years because you know you start studying you start spending time on all these players career data is available youtube is available so to comment on becker uh, before wimbledon 85 or even wimbledon 87 which is where i really started got into the sport uh, i didn't know much about tennis so but now where i can prepare for a podcast like this and look into his career i also had a book which was written by gunther bosch like which was the first two years of becker so I would give you like an answer that you already know. I don't have much expertise there. Uh, I think he was uh, he was not a relatively unknown. Yeah, he was 17 and he was unseated because you know there were only 16 seeds. But coming into Wimbledon, he his ATP ranking was 20. It was not like it's, it's like Alcaraz winning in Australia, like you know two months from now. So he wasn't a complete unknown, right? Yeah, it, yeah. A lot okay. of people thought he could do it. Like Johan Creek said that right when he was my podcast. Like uh, he said to Connors that if the guy, the kid can play like this, you know, uh, in, in a couple of weeks from now, he can win Wimbledon, you know, and that week he did only lose one set and he got the likes of Pat Cash, Paul McNamee and Johan Creek, among others. He won six matches and uh, he was ranked 29th and then with Wimbledon, he was ranked 20. So it was not really a matter of like, you know, big surprise, but I think more surprising was his age. 
in the best of five set format, even though youngsters or teenagers would win. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Prior to that, uh, a lot of people who are like, you know, tennis geeks like us uh, must know that he made Australian Open run as a just turned 17 year old, I think a month after his birthday, Australian Open was played in December. And uh, so, yeah, he wasn't really uh, no entity come Wimbledon time, but uh, just a little anecdote, Gene Mayer, who was in my podcast last year, he mentioned that his younger brother, Sandy Mayer, had played Becker. I think uh, sometime in the fall of 83, when he was 16, I think. And that was a three-hour, three-set match. And he just couldn't believe how good this young kid was. And, you know, of course, the rest is history. And uh, another anecdote, which I would like... That was his... To... Sorry to interrupt you. That was his uh, first professional match, I think, in Cologne, Germany. I believe so. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, 6-4 in the third. Yes, that's yeah. correct. No, and, 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 Against another... Sandy Mayer, that is. Yeah. Another anecdote I remember either from the book or reading from the Gunther Bosch, you know, some of the articles that I used to, you know, Google around, I don't know if they're available now. So when he started working with Becker, he brought Becker to hit with Guillermo Vilas, who was still, you know, on the decline, but still a very fit. He was basically a beast. So they played, I think, five or six sets in clay and, uh, you know, no quarter given, nor ass. And, you know, Vilas tested uh, the young German and Becker went toe to toe. And I think I remember reading Bosch said in the end, both men were tired and Becker could have gone for another set. So I think to them, I think as uh, Bosch and Tyriak were the team, they knew like he is kind of heading in that direction. He was a boy who was playing a man's game. I think we've heard that cliche a lot of times in the 80s because Villander and Chang, when they won as teenagers, they were not these imposing figures. They relied on the stamina and their baseline game. Becker wasn't the quickest guy on the baseline. So he was always playing aggressive tennis and his you know more than that better than I that his serve and volley wasn't as uh, good looking serve and volley like Pat Cash or Stefan Edberg or even Anders Yared he was more like a very athletic guy like who's just jumping around and you know driving two balls he just he definitely had a decent backhand volley what I could tell but his forehand volley was always I think discussed which wasn't as good as you know some of the other serve and volleyers so so yeah, Becker was a very rare guy. Like, you know, he backed a serve and volley punch, which was more serve than volley. I, that's, mm -hmm. how I, that's how I remember seeing him. Yes. Of course, Sakib, you know, I'm, I'm, before I get into, uh, uh, you know, Becker's uh, lack of titles on clay courts, I'm going to have a more nuanced question for you on that. And uh, and we talk about his Wimbledon exploits because when we talk about Becker, we identify we identify him with uh, Wimbledon grass courts, etc. I wanted to get your opinion or your take on his uh, on his hard court dexterity because his his last three majors were all won on hard courts, Australian Open and U.S. Open, and I think that gets lost in the shuffle a little bit that he was a very able uh, um, hard court player. So um, yeah, can you can you go deeper into that uh, into that take? Perhaps is there something to uh, to look at there to analyze? Yeah, I think it's a very fair question, and uh, you, you're right. You know, Becker's uh, synonymous with Wimbledon, and he's also synonymous with uh, indoor tennis because you know we've talked about this on Twitter, and you know you you call the indoor matches he played against Pete Sampras in Hanover '96 is one of the probably greatest matches of all time. So yeah, his hardcore res resume is kind of a bit strange. And again, I'm kind of a, a Becker nerd. And I'll just start with the, you know, the U.S. Open win that he had against Lendl. You know, uh, 
he, his US Open resume wasn't bad in the in the 80s, right? He was, you know, he had some odd losses like the one to Darren Cahill in 1988. But then in 1989, you know, the famous match point save in the second round with the net cord over Derek Rostanio. Then he goes on yes. to beat Crickstein and Lendl to win the title. And, uh, you know, that was his best year. Uh, and But after that, his US Open murder is kind of very tricky. He goes, loses to Agassi next year. And I'm only talking strictly majors. He did win Indian Wells twice. And he's he won, I think, Cincinnati once. He also won, I think, Canada once, if I'm not mistaken. So his US Open resume from mid-80s to early 90s is decent. 90 semifinal, 86 semifinal. And then he plays a semifinal against Agassi in 95. So compared to Edberg, who's like the guy who's he really paired against, they were like more pronounced lows and then, you know, few highs. Uh, but US Open, I would still say, is a more consistent slam from Becker's point of view, even though he didn't play there again after 95, which is very strange, that Agassi match, the infamous match is his last match at US Open. He had a lot of injuries, uh, you know, so he missed the uh, US Open in 96 and 97, and then he retired. Uh, but Australian Open is a very funny tale, I think. You know, he did make the quarters as a teenager when it was in grass. Then first year in Flinders Park, he's carrying an injury when you know, he's starting to shape his career after uh, losing Gunter Bosch. So he doesn't go to Flinders Park. But then he does win two titles in 91 and 96. And uh, not to like, you know, just be historical year by year uh, analogy on Becker's Australian Open. That's like the weirdest piece in his puzzle. If you look at it as a tennis player, like those two titles came with within a space of five years. He didn't win a major for five years. But in between that, he didn't have... Uh, he didn't have a lot of great history in Australia. Like if you were to ask me then where is the next major coming, I would always say it's Wimbledon and US Open was tough because Andre and Pete were always there, but he still was a decent US Open player, if I if you ask me. But when he won in 96, after 91, in between those four years, he did not play in 94. And the other three years, he just wins two matches. <laughs> he loses. Hold on, of... hold on. But you mean, just to, just to recap here, between his... 91 Australian Open t- title and 96 Australian Open title. He only won two matches at the Australian Open in three years because at 94 wow. he was he was injured. He didn't play. Uh, that made his you know combined with 88 like two years in his peak. He missed Australia, which again is a big thing on his uh, you know fitness wise. He was a man who would get injured a lot, big frame to maintain. And then uh, 92, he, the only time, I think, he, or second time, only two times he lost to McIndoe was, what, I think, outside of a major. McIndoe got him. And in 93, he loses to Anders Yarrett first round. And 95, he used to Patrick McIndoe. So then that 96 win is just like, you can say, yeah, he did win the year in championships and he played Wimbledon finals. He was the third best player in 95. So he clearly needed that break. And Australian Open was the break where, you know, Sampras was taken out by Philippousis. The draw opened up. He, you know, Becker was playing really good tennis. But yeah, it just started bumpy. First two rounds, he had to go five against Rosetsky and Magnus Norman. Oh, my uh, word. Yeah. Do you remember some of the commentary that you heard at the time, you know, on the first round on TV or or, or on the press? Considering that he's only won two matches in the last four years uh, at the Australian Open? did, did, did Did you see headlines like, Okay, here we go again at Burke. He's gonna. He's not gonna make the second week in the Australian Open. It, it's so funny you ask me that because the coverage on ESPN only had finals live that year, and okay. Becker had to play Mark Woodford, I think, in the semis, and he had to play Kafelnikov in the quarters. We didn't get those live in the US. Uh, okay. But there were like two incidents I would like to mention. Yevgeny Kafelnikov was like you know very brash, and you know you sometimes want someone like that. So the moment Sampras lost, 
he said, this is my tournament. I'm going to win this. And you don't say this with guys like Becker in the <laughs> tournament, right? And then they played in quarters. Becker just put a lesson out there. I think of yeah. serve and volley, chip in charge, and totally disrupted the Russian. So that was one. But then the other thing was Becker, again, was also, bit, bit, I think, a bit of insecure with Agassi and Sampras's dominance. So I think in the press, to answer your question, I do remember when he was playing the Australian final, he said, well, I'm number three. I'm not supposed to be in the final. I'm finished. I was in Wimbledon final. I won year in championship, but I'm finished. I'm in the U.S. Open semis, but I'm finished. Thank you. And, you know, that's how, you know, he was just very condescending because he probably yeah. had heard that, that his time is up. So he was very confident going into the final against Chang because Chang had beaten Agassi. So he, I think that press conference was shown before him, his and Chang's final. So I don't know what the exact question was, but at that point, as a Becker fan, I was just so thrilled that he's playing a major final. So in other words, Sakib, he was basically throwing darts back at everyone who criticized him just recently then, correct? In that, in yeah, that one, you uh, can say that point. because, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, you, you close, you follow this industry and, you know, the egos, you know, the, the, the alpha ego of a sportsman or a sportswoman is huge. It's a one-to-one sport. So him being the big face of tennis and the big superstar, I think it was a very hard pill to swallow that, uh, you know, he was clearly the third wheel behind Agassi and Sampras, and that too by a distance. You know, you know, at Wimbledon, Sampras was, you know, king. And year in championships, they were the two best players. But it was just the battle between Agassi and uh, Pete. And Boris was just trying to get his say. And, uh, you know, it's a, it was a fitting end to win a major. He would have probably gone through one of them. But a major is a major. Like 20 years later or 25 years later, we don't care that who he beat. It's his two Australian Opens. But, yeah, the road to yeah. the title was very strange. Like, how he didn't, you know, win too many matches. So I've always believed, like, you know, what sometimes even Matt and I talk about this, that unless your name is uh, Novak Djokovic or Roger Federer or Pete Sampras and Boris Becker, winning the year in championship doesn't really mean you're going to set the world on fire next year. Because right. very few people have won that tournament and gone on to win Australia. That's so, true. So Becker, you know, had that rare opportunity when he won in 95 and then he won the title in Melbourne. Uh, so I think he had the streak. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so uh, you you did the, in a sentence or two the in there. You mentioned something about his uh, clay court prowess, but uh, so I wanted to ask you about uh, about his um, what you thought was his best chance to win a clay court event. Uh, so let's let's go to that next because uh, it's often um, his clay court prowess is often underrated because Boris Becker actually. Um, uh, and he says this himself too, that uh, he's, uh, you know, he grew up on clay courts, so he knows how to play on clay courts. And yet he doesn't have a single title on clay court to his name, which, uh, which on paper is a big hole in his, uh, in his resume, if, if you, if you want to take it that way. But at the same time, he's reached, uh, he's reached um, several finals and he did reach the semifinals of, uh, of Roland Garros more than once. So I wanted to ask you, um, what was his best opportunity in your in your mind where he could have fulfilled that hole so that it didn't appear on his resume later? Because that is a knock that he that comes his way often. He never won a clay court event, and yet the guy grew up on grew up on clay courts. When when was his best chance? In your you think he could have uh, you know stopped that from ha- happening? In other words, just win a title on clay. You know, it's funny uh, because you yourself have you know taken your tennis. Uh, Education in in Italy or France, right? France, Mert. 
France and Switzerland. Switzerland, yeah. So you know, clay is the base. Clay is the base. Be be it Novak Djokovic, be it Roger Federer or Boris Becker, they all grew up on clay. Stefan Edberg, right? So it's not like they're aliens to clay. They learn their fundamentals on clay, their movement. They slide better than the Americans. A guy like Agassi or Courier who won, but I bet Becker and Edberg were natural sliders. But yeah, clay is just like, you know, has become like an... Uh, a trivia question attached to Boris Becker, and one can argue, I was looking at tennisabstract.com, that his career win percentage is 65 point something on clay, which is higher than Sampras. And Sampras probably won, definitely won it for Italico in 94 over Becker. And he probably has one or two clay title and Becker has zero. Yeah, but Becker he has three. Sampras has three, but but only one in Europe, the one yeah, in Rome. Only, yeah, yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Those, the, the US titles don't really count that much. And uh, again, you know, for the for if you want to just make that kind of an argument. But uh, Becker did have a fairly reasonable clay career. I mean, he didn't play many French Opens after reaching the final semis against Agassi. He didn't play in 92, he didn't play in 94, he didn't play in 96, and then he retired. So it's just a very injury-prone career. On 94, he withdrew on the day of the draw. It was just like a gut a punch in my gut. Like it was summer vacation and French Open was shown live and I'm getting excited. I had a friend over and guess what? He withdraws, day of the mm-hmm. tournament. Things happen. But uh, he did reach semis three times, but 90, uh, 87, 89, and 91. And I would say 89 is his biggest chance uh, or the biggest loss or the biggest opportunity missed when he lost the semis to Edberg, whom he dominated in head-to-head rivalry. And losing that semi to Edberg, I think, uh, in hindsight, you know, hindsight 2020, and I know how Becker played against Chang. To me, that's the biggest missed opportunity he had. He could have won a career slam had he, had he beaten Edberg that day. But Edberg was superb. Edberg finished the fifth set 6-2. Uh, and, and Edberg but is you're also... Sh- in- you're sure that he would have done against Chang well? Why? Because why, in 91, 91, two years later, Becker destroyed Chang on uh, Philip Chatrier, 4-4-2. Four, four, then okay. he beat him, you know, everywhere. I think he only lost to him once in Japan Open in 94. Yes. So that's the uh, only close match that Becker's lost. His, drive, his record in Chang is 3-1 or 5-2. So I thought, and, and plus he, he was a great big match player. You know, at least that was, that was uh, the mantra that was fed to us. And Edberg too, I think both guys had the biggest chance that year to win in, on clay. So their careers kind of have coincided and, you know, they were playing for the title, but, you know, destiny had it other way. Chang was going to win the title because Lendl was knocked out. Wielander was in a total decline. And this is before the rise of Bruguera, Courier and Agassi. So, and going back to your question, I, I'm not giving uh, much of an answer here, but uh, I think the other big chance he had was against Thomas Mooster uh, in the Monte Carlo final. That's the third Monte Carlo final Becker lost. And Becker had two match points. And uh, ironically, Tennis TV had put out a highlights packet during the pandemic for that match, and they don't cover the match points. Can you believe it? They show oh Becker way. winning the first two sets, and then we are looking at fifth set or something. And I'm just saying, are you kidding me? Who did? Who does this? Mm-hmm. Because this, this, that's a, this, that match has such a historical significance. And mm-hmm. Becker, in one of the match points, Murd went for a 126 mile an hour ace, and he double faulted. The first match point, yes. Yeah, yes. I didn't watch the match. I was in India. I read about yeah. it. And then Muster had to call a trainer in that match. Uh, and Becker, the handshake was semi-cold. And I remember reading Becker next to saying either he is, either he is, uh, what do you call, such a great actor or they gave him a magical pill because he was a different man after the timeout. So, I mean, Becker on clay is just, uh, you know, there's a lot going on there. Even his final against Bruguera is pretty good. Mancini match was a missed opportunity. And there have been some beatdowns. Alex Korecha, I think, played a three-set final against him when Becker was semi-retired. 
in Stad and you know uh, Marcelo Rios destroyed him in a semis in 97 so he was even in his off years he was making he was making inroads in clay like Monte Carlo he made quarters in 99 when he had only played six matches so I think this guy this guy really could play on clay he it doesn't really do justice you know the numbers he's possessed because everybody saw oh, he didn't win on clay I mean I can make an argument even though Edberg has won three titles or four titles uh yeah, four tiles against zero. I'm sounding more like a fanboy and a Beckertard or whatever you want to say. But uh, there's more to more to it than just winning a title. And Roddick won like five tiles in Houston. And nobody considers Roddick a clay court player. I mean, American right. clay. And, you know, you can't take anything away from... It's the schedule. It still gives you 250 points. But Becker on clay was, I think... Uh, it deserves better than, you know, the seven finals. He's, he's got lost. numerous, numerous finals. Numerous finals and semifinals. You're right. Yes, against the best players. Yeah. And I wouldn't say he didn't beat a Lendl or an Agassi, but yeah, he, he beat a Perez Roldan and some of those guys, you know, uh, the Yizagas or Gomez. I mean, he, he competed with these guys, Sanchez, you know, he, he could, he, you know, he would show up and win these matches. So three French semis is, I think, a lot more than Sampras, you know, Sampras, Sampras has won semis. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not a knock uh, to to knock the other legends, but I think, yeah, his clear resume and if someone is digging history now, uh, is underrated, would, huh? And they would miss a lot of context. I yeah. think you do miss a lot of context without saying, you know, what actually went on because numbers tell you everything. But then there is like a big gray area in numbers if you haven't lived the era, you haven't lived the articles, you haven't lived the narratives going into a tournament. I think that kind of changes the perspective. Yes, yes. Context is king. Yeah, you're right. Um, okay, so Sakib, let's go. I'm going to take reverse course from clay courts and go into grass courts and more specifically to Becker's relationship with Wimbledon. And, uh, and of course the 1985 Wimbledon where he, he uh, bursts onto the main stage gets, uh, is often brought up and he's, he's always asked about it, but uh, I think it, it's, it's what's more underrated is that uh, he played, I believe 15 Wimbledons in total from the from the first time in his career to the to the last time in 1999 and out of those 15 12 out of those 15 he might he made it to the second week and most of those are semifinals and finals so i wanted to ask you about that i mean his relationship with wimbledon you know this he used to call it his house before sampras uh, took over in the late 90s and uh what uh, i guess I guess what were some of the special moments at Wimbledon outside of his 1985 run, you know, cause he won it three times and he stopped some other big names from uh, putting, putting that tournament on their, on their resume too. So what, you know, talk a little bit about his, uh, his relationship with Wimbledon in terms of what he brought to the scene and in terms of what he may have taken away, some of the joy that he may have taken away from others during during the, those that fifteen year span, yeah, I think it's uh, it's fair to say that Becker was made for Wimbledon, as a cliche goes. Or uh, I've said this many times in the podcast. Use him as an example, or even Sampras uh, about indoor courts and U.S. Open uh, surfaces. Uh, the big three have kind of changed how we view tennis, you know. And it's a compliment, but at the same time, it kind of heavily underscores how the other guys were playing before that. So. Boris Becker, you know, even uh, the first part of the year was never strong. He would have some good results in clay, but his year would start at Wimbledon. And, you know, up till that point, if Andre Gomez won it or uh, Jim Courier was winning it, you knew, like, come grass time, Becker would be a factor. 
for the longest time he was the factor and this in the second half of his career he was the second best player after Sampras along with Ivanisevic who would always be making the push at the business end so to rank my favorite Wimbledon i think uh, it's 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 ironic that he lost the final in 88 because that's when i started following you know tennis as a full full blown uh, you know fan who knew when how the calendar worked who knew all these other names so becker had lost to duhan the year before so for me as a fan when the draw came out he was supposed to play pat cash and we were also lendl fans so we wanted that match so bad because uh, i wanted you know like as a young fan you wanted like some sort of a revenge and and cash had already reached the australian open final he took out lendl in five and lost to wilander in five in the first year at flinders park when they had switched surfaces so that was like i remember bbc one of the john barrer or someone said uh, it was a final before the final so when becker drew cash on a wednesday match and there was a funny match too like cash slipped at the net and then becker dove on the other side of the net to make a joke and cash wasn't a big becker fan so i think there were some words exchanged uh, but again you know that for me as a fan that was a good wimbledon and then he played lendl who was my other favorite player and then he loses the final to edberg so it is it's kind of uh, weird that i'm rating that higher than his win in 89 when he absolutely streamrolled edberg in the final but uh, those two years i think were his best years uh, when fans of my generation because 85 86 happened way too fast at least for me you didn't know first what tennis was second year when he won we didn't get the final because a political uh, a big political leader had died in india so they didn't show the final live and then we knew the result on monday so there was no point watching uh, you know a recorded final at 10 pm at night because there was school on tuesday so in in and in many ways after he lost to duhan in 87 88 was my coming out party so sorry i'm making more about myself than becker because, <laughs> but but you're talking to me so i think that's that's right that's part of it yes and then uh, and then i would also talk about uh, mert 94 which is not your typical year but that's one time uh, when boris becker was booed at wimbledon So this was my first year in college and last year in India. So that's I still hard for, that's hard for me to fathom. Sakib that Boris Becker actually was booed yeah, at yeah, Wimbledon booed. in the early 90s. You know, he's uh he's kind of is in the middle of his seven or eight peak years and at Wimbledon especially out of all I mean people were crazy about him at Wimbledon. How did this happen? Can you run us through that? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, you've seen even tennis before I did, so I've heard and through a lot of uh, tennis videos and a lot of coverage back in the day that he was the most popular player in Wimbledon he, almost like Borg the british adopted him even though he was german as his own for two weeks he used to say this is my living room so yeah 94 was a very very peculiar wimbledon for becker right so he was he was not the forgotten name he had a very very average 93 the first time in his career he missed out on the year end finals he lost to german or oh, sorry frenchman arnold burch in in percy and that was his chance and he couldn't make it to the tournament in uh, Frankfurt so come 94 he's making some inroads but loses i think early uh, doesn't play french open doesn't have a very good clay court season so comes wimbledon i was very hopeful that he'll do something and uh, controversy surrounded him he played argentine javier frana in the third round and wimbledon was live in india so we were watching a lot of those matches so he took a bathroom break and then in the bathroom break he got a massage and john mackinder was in air next day that that's cheating this breach of rules he should have been thrown out of wimbledon british tabloids were all over his case and frana said okay i don't know what happened but i don't think that's why i lost the match but 
he's definitely a top player and he got away with it. So there was a lot of so noise. So Saki, wait, hold on. Are you telling me that there was this bathroom break controversies before Sitsipas and Murray yeah. this past year? Yeah. Because, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean. Go ahead, go ahead. Look, you know, the, the younger fans and the more volatile Twitter fans. Because, see, I mean, people think that that just came about this year. You know, this uh, this bathroom break controversy has a long, long yes. history. But, uh, yeah. yeah. But go it, ahead. I'm sorry. I, I thought I'd throw that in there. No, that's, no, that's, that's, that's fine. I think, I mean, that's the beauty of living in present because everyone, you can talk freely about all these guys from the past because today, I know you don't really care. You have a very strict way of operating and because you don't play favorites or, but uh, it's very tough to like, you know, even objectively analyze any top player today because your fandom is huge. Sitsipas fans will find you, right? You know, like that's, and you don't have time unless, especially if you're me, I don't want to do that. But again, going back to that. So yeah, that was, uh, I don't know, as a fan, I was, very mad that when McEnroe said Becker should have been thrown out and McEnroe just retired, he was doing commentary. And uh, so next match, he plays uh, Andre Medvedev. And that's a very contentious match. It goes, I think it rains in the fourth set, then they continue in the fifth set. So in the fifth set, Becker's down a break and Medvedev serving, I think, 4-3, 40-15, I believe. Or I could be wrong. And it's a second serve and Medvedev is about to toss the ball and Becker just, you know, raises his hand that something's in his eyes. And then, of course, <laughs> next point, Becker wins a point and breaks, and Medvedev didn't like it. He said, that's gamesmanship. So, of course, that's what the media needed. And uh, and Becker was, again, already carrying on baggage from the Javier Frana match. And it continued to the quarterfinal when he played Christian Bergstrom. And Bergstrom, Bergstrom was serving for the set, I believe. And Becker, which was, again, not Becker's fault. I think there was a rally ball that goes in the baseline. So Becker kind of used his hand saying it's out, but continued to play. And then he won the rally and Bergstrom said to the umpire that he distracted me. But I've seen that today. Like, I'm not saying that was gamesmanship, even though Becker, you know, could do some gamesmanship. So as a result, when he played Goran in the semis on Friday, uh, Becker reached for his lower back or something and the crowd started booing him. And then you could see his face. Like, he, he never thought, like, this relationship would be damaged, that the the events of the previous three matches will result this on center court because uh, Medvedev match was court one. And, you know, even though it's court one, it's still Wimbledon. So I think you could see his body language. And as a fan, I thought I'll never see him play again because... Uh, you, he was devastated? Thought... No, I, I, thought who, I thought he might never return because, you know, like the kind of uh, exit he had. He lost straight mm-hmm. sets. Goran was clearly the better player. This was their second Wimbledon match in 90. Becker got him in four. And uh, yeah, he just. So what I'm understanding from what you're saying is it was accumulation of two or three rounds of happenings in a row. You know, the little, little small things that took place through two or three rounds in a row that finally came to came to an explosion in 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 the form of a manifestation of booze from the fans. And you know, Bert, right, like uh, you've been going to Wimbledon and you know how the culture works, the tabloids and the media. Boris Becker was like a media darling. Yes. Right? Even though Sampras was a defending champion, let's not make mistake about it in popularity terms. He was like a Rafa Nadal or a Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic of his era. Yes, he stood sure. taller. Maybe Andre Agassi. Fans can lay claim that he was a bigger superstar. In superstar and Becker, in, in my tennis, watching for those for that decade, he was second to none because Mac was a pale shadow. Lendl never had the crowds on his side. And media always gave him the short end of the stick. And Lendl didn't care if he got the right end of the stick. So to see Becker being treated by fans and media like that, and I didn't know what I know now, I would have processed it better. So as a teenager, I was like, oh, this is something, this is something bad. Maybe he won't play here again. 
of course, that wasn't the case. He played three more Wimbledons after that. But uh, yeah, that was you know, one bizarre Wimbledon. And then uh, other one I would like to add is 96, my second year in States, when he was playing really good. Uh, he was working with, uh, you know, Mike DePama Jr. Uh, he had parted ways with Nick Boletari earlier that year. And, and this is the year again, in hindsight, Krejcet took out Sampras. So I always think what would have happened had Becker not broke his, broken his wrist against Neville Godwin on court one. So again, you were saying oh, in, fif- that's right. in yes. 15 years, he always made week two. Yeah, the three times he didn't make week two and all three times his exit was not on center court. Duhan took him out on court one. Neville Godwin, the wrist gets broken on a forehand return, court one. And then I don't even know what court he was on 84. Definitely wasn't one of the big courts when he had to yeah. be rolled out on a stretcher. Yeah, he led to Bill Scanlon. That's yeah. right. He was he, in the fourth set. Yeah. yeah. And he wasn't, that was in the third round too, by the way. Third round, yeah. First Wimbledon, yeah. So in 96, um, I was always thinking what could have happened. Of course, Krejcik served like crazy, but uh, you don't know how that would have played out because Becker had a decent record against Krejcik and you would fancy him in a Wimbledon final against anyone not named Sampras. Agreed. So you you kind of mentioned that in there. And by the way, I agree with you that uh, if I had to name the biggest so-called superstars you know, of the late 80s, early 90s, that era... Uh, that 10, 12 year period, I would go with Becker and Agassi also. You know, the, those two were, uh, the whole world followed those those two guys. In turn. And, and, I, and I honestly think, even though I'm a Becker fan, I think the big bone of discontention was Becker really didn't accept Agassi. First, he thought Agassi was all flash. He even said some something you would never catch. He called him a punk, I think, one time or something like that. No, that was a... I don't know about that, but he said something, you will never catch me in the outfit he had on today or like the pink. You know, so yes, the, the he, denim, he never, denim shorts, Is denim short, and yeah, the pink <laughs> bandana. And so, so yeah. I think he knew, like, you know, popularity wise, this guy's a major superstar. And I think that kind of that kind of made Becker a little, you know, insecure. I can say mm-hmm. that as a fan, there's mm-hmm. no grounds. And I think that kind of led to that infamous, uh, ugly moment they had in '95 when Becker, you know, yes, kept taking and that's, jabs. That, that was going to be my next question to you. What about can you talk a little bit about his? rivalry with with Andre Agassi and how that dynamic impacted it but go ahead yeah you you actually started answering it in a way yeah. I mean the rivalry is one-sided right so they played first time in 88 in Kibis, uh, sorry in Indian Wells which was called Newsweek Cup and Becker won that title he defended he had won in 87 over Edberg he played Agassi I remember we were going to school and we got the morning newspaper and I read I couldn't pronounce Agassi's name I knew this is not this is not your typical American name. Even I knew then, as a 12-year-old, this name doesn't sound like a McEnroe or a teacher or a Scanlon, you know? So right. anyway, so, and then my father later on found out, like, you know, this guy was an, uh, I think, Iranian immigrant, but, you know, rest is history. So he beats Agassi there. Then he beats him two more times in, I think, uh, indoor and then Davis Cup match. And after that, Agassi turns a rivalry around, big time. You know, he's just beating him at will. And now we know Agassi could read Becker's tongue if he had kept the tongue in his mouth he wouldn't have read a service direction because Agassi made him look like very slow in a lot of these matches. Yes, yes. That's a famous clip when, when Agassi says that, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I think in 95, I don't remember exactly. I've tried to find out more like those press conferences where Becker made big deal, but he did insinuate, even though Agassi was world number one, Becker really had no grounds. He was seated third. He said, Nike guys are getting center court. So Sampras was two-time defending champion. He said, I'm okay with Sampras, but I've won here three times because Becker had to play his fourth round on court two against Dick Norman. And then he played his quarters against Piolin on court one. 
So, you know, he was really talking, you know, either trash or he was doing gamesmanship, but he did call Agassi out when it was no Agassi's fault. He's world number one. He's as popular as Becker, probably maybe more popular than. So the Wimbledon committee kept putting him on center court and Becker uh, in his first five matches only got two center court appointments. And that set the same scene up for that semifinal where he beat Agassi for the first time in like six years, you know, reversing a 3-8 deficit into 4-8. And he finally, you know, beat him in that match, uh, which was again, my first summer in US. I was first time I'm watching Wimbledon without my dad. Oh, there was such an emotional match I watched by myself. My aunt sitting next to me and she had no idea what tennis is. And she's waiting for me to get rid of the match so she can watch some Hindi movie. I said, no, no, we, have, we can't change the match here. And Becker's down 6-2-4-1, Murd. And I'm thinking, okay, at least take a set. So lose respect, you know, lose with some dignity. It's Wimbledon. <laughs> no, yes, I remember that. I remember that match. I watched it live. He, uh, it was a big comeback, unexpected comeback, totally unexpected. Big, because you're right, he was... Uh, he hadn't beaten them in a long time. Yes. But and then that, it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, sorry. So again, no, I was going to say like that, that, then it turns around, right? And in, 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 at the US Open, Agassi beats them in the semis. And there's a very cold handshake there. Yeah. I remember. Well, that, that, Agassi that, didn't even glance towards Boris. Oh, yeah. Was, uh, I mean, his hand. The stuff is in Agassi's book. I think that's one of the biggest chapters. You know, he talks about, you call him F in German and all that because, you know, he was mad coming into that match. And what made worse in that match was Becker against a very strong character, right? So there's a funny thing in that match. I don't know if you were in the U.S. then. So Becker is losing 7-6-7-6-4-1. And CBS Sports, it was Super Saturday, and they showed during the match, tomorrow's final, Sampras versus Agassi at 4 oh p.m. Oh, my. <laughs> and I didn't even notice. You know, like, I'm in the U.S. my first summer, and my cousin's house where we were staying, her husband is watching the match with me. And he said, did you just see that? I said, what happened? He oh, said, they, the match is not over. They showed Sampras in the final. Oh, sorry, Beck, I guess in the final, I say, yeah, but he's losing. He said, no, that's not the point. Match is not over. They cannot put as a telecast broadcaster that this match is over. And of course, Becker wins course. the next five games and breaks Agassi. Yeah. So now we are in fourth set. And <laughs> Agassi keeps talking to Brad Gilbert, Brooke Shields, his corner, like, you know, the guy, Rogers guy, his agent. And Becker told Wayne McEwen that th- there's coaching going on. He's cheating. And of course, Agassi wasn't cheating. He's been doing that. That was Agassi's show uncalled for. But, you know, tennis allows that. He was in his own element. He's talking, you know, crowds loving that. And Agassi got the whiff of it. Empire called him, didn't give him a warning. And then Becker shouldn't have done that, I think. In my view, it was three all when he did that. He were only to hold serve one more time. And when Agassi broke him at four or five, Murd, it felt like he's playing tennis from four or five years in further in future. He made Becker look like, a, like someone slow, like my second serve. Mm-hmm. Becker is serving and the return is coming. Agassi was so pissed and that just followed the coldest handshake. I think Becker here went too far. He tried to get into Agassi's head and it kind of... And it backfired? It kind of backfired. Had he not backfired, I would have Becker to take the match at least to the fifth set because he was really giving Agassi all sort of, you know, fits. And Agassi yeah. needed that extra emotion. And Becker gave him, and of course, you know, they, and they even played doubles when Becker was semi-retired in Stuttgart. And then Agassi said to the press conference there, we had a bad moment, like you have one with your wife that's behind us. We admire each other's career. And he said, I've always maintained Becker and McEnroe can play doubles with anyone and they could be the best player in doubles. Yes. So they had a lot of respect. And I'll even mention one more point about 92 Wimbledon quarters as a fan. I talk, talked to this uh, Steve Flink when he was in the podcast doing a Wimbledon retro issue. Uh, Becker was making, you know, he won the first set 6-4 and then Agassi's totally stomping home uh, over him. 
And finally, Becker breaks Sorry, him. Sorry, what tournament is this again? Repeat. Wimbledon 92 quarters. Wimbledon 92, okay. So Agassi is up two sets to one, and Becker finally breaks him to go up 4-2 in the fourth, and it starts raining. And Nick Bolletary said, had it not rained, Becker was such a superior fifth-set player. I, Nick Bolletary said, we thought Andre would lose the match. But then next day, Agassi wins a fifth-set 6-3. So yes. as a Becker fan, you know, Agassi losses were the most painful because some of my best friends growing up were Agassi fans. So there was no place to hide for me when Agassi was putting on a beating. So yeah. believe me, that 95 match was very special. But then, yeah, they had that ugly moment. It kind of uh, overshadowed what Becker did at Wimbledon because Agassi really kicked his butt at the U.S. Open. Yeah, the the, the way you told the story, now I'm going to, I really want to go back and watch that fourth set of that uh, U.S. Open semifinal again. You know, and see if you can see it. the USTA putting that. Uh, well, that would, that would be in the third, right? You said that was in the, yeah, third, in the set. third. Okay, I need yeah. to, I guess I need to start watching from 3-1 in the third set all the way to the end of the match. Because I, I also want to catch the little nuances that you just mentioned in terms of what happened in the fourth set in that match. You know, that... Uh, that uh, instant where Agassi got the extra motivation in the last two games. I, so, yeah, that was very vivid account and, and of would, what happened. And I would say that, right? I've seen tennis, a lot of tennis up to that point. And now Murray and all these guys, Tommy Haas, they, they yell at their boxes. I guess we've come to accept that. The modern-day fan, if they're listening to it, they would say, what's the big deal? But what Agassi was doing, maybe he was changing things, but I've never seen anyone talk to their camp like that while in a live match. So I felt as a Becker fan, I felt right that he called out, but I, even I knew that Agassi wasn't cheating. But it, it seemed like a distraction to me because, you know, call me old school. This is like 95. This is like 27 years ago. I didn't know what to make of it, but he was doing it from round one. It was not he was just doing it in the Becker match. Yeah. But uh, but Becker, I think, went too far. He, he called and this is the, and this isn't the uh, this isn't the Agassi this isn't Agassi's early years either. We're not talking about 1989, 1990, 1991, where where he was young and still brash no, and, this and is, made a lot of this one. is yeah this is he's 1995 when he uh when he started when he started to make his big comeback after having lost it a little bit in the in the year or two before and right, before yeah. you go into other questions i'll also like to put like more fan more fan baggage here because Please i guess he's, i guess he's good that he in, in his book he wrote like the following, you know, following this match when he lost to Sampras, it broke his heart, and you know, he didn't have interest in the sport because he thought he was the best player in the world, and Sampras got the number one ranking. So then, in '96, Agassi says in his book, he loses to Chang, he tanks because he's not playing well, so that he can avoid losing to Becker in the final. Uh-huh. So that just that just puts up so many things out there. I don't want to take no names in modern day players, but I'm sure all fans who are listening, we've seen sometimes some player going out to a player, so, oh, you know, maybe if Agassi could do it, I'm just throwing it out there. Anybody can do it. Yes. Agassi is may- maybe the only one to, to, to acknowledge bluntly, it. bluntly say it and, and acknowledge it. But yes, maybe some but other then, players have done it. But yeah, but if you, but if you ever speculate about that, you're right. That wh- whoever that fan, whoever that player is, that just shows fan base is going to go crazy. You know, no, and, and that just shows the head-to-head and these matchups matter to them. So I guess he'd rather lose to Chang, who he knew he was a better player, but he didn't want to lose to Becker in Australian Open final because yes. he knew Becker's playing well and Agassi wasn't playing well. And there are some people you just don't want to lose to, and Becker was one of those for Agassi. Yeah, and then it uh, sounds if, you, like. if you fast-forward the year in 96 World Tour Finals, when Becker and uh, Sampras played that uh, hell of a match that we all talk about, Becker, Agassi, and Sampras were in the same pool. So first day, Sampras beats Agassi 2-1. 
and Becker wins his pool match. So I'm saying, okay, now he will get to kick Agassi's ass. Just get win. Agassi withdraws. So it, I always thought like, you know, that withdrawal was iffy. Huh. He said he has like sinus or cold-like symptoms. He loses to Sampras 6-2-6-1. And then someone else comes in place of Agassi. And of course, Becker goes on to win the pool. But, you know, so those are things, you know, like if somebody You're is telling right, me right. they're professionals, there, there's more writing there that we will never know. What yeah, there are more of... layers to 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 simple sentences. That's right. Exactly. Wow, that's that's great stuff, Saki. That's great stuff. And I apologize to Agassi fans. I mean, I'm just fr- fr- no, no, free no, here. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, so uh, no, I think anyone who knows you knows that uh, even though you're a fan of a certain player, you're very uh, uh, you, you you're able to to put your objective opinions forth. But uh, okay, so um, moving on to another rivalry. Uh, his rivalry, his rivalry with Ivan Lendl, and uh, a, a lot of people, including you, have um, have put forth in the in the past that you thought Boris Becker was the, one of the best, if not the best, indoor court player of uh, of modern times, or 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 maybe the Open era. What do you and, think? Um, I think he is. No, I know, I know. You yeah. said that, and other people have said that, and and I agree. He's definitely one of the best. I'd say top two or three. But he does have a losing record against Ivan Lendl indoor courts. And they played 12 times. It's not like they played, you know, five or six times and Lendl happens to be 4-2 up. Or they played 12 times and Lendl is 7-5 up. Yeah. And, and a lot of those matches came in Lendl's later years. So there is an argument to be made there that, uh, that perhaps Lendl is one and Boris Becker is two, if you want to really rank them. What do you think? Look, again, head-to-head is, uh, is, 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 a, is a very... Tricky, limited tricky. scope. Limited I mean, scope. it does mean something. It can be used as a tie break. Of course, Lendl won a lot of titles. Lendl, you know, is a hell of a carpet player, and so is Becker, and you know, indoor hard as well. And there were like some matches. I think the '88 match was a match that was the kind of uh, Becker won the biggest match. If some people would say that kind of set is '88 in '89 in motion when he was working with Bob Brett. but Lendl had already beaten twice in straight sets. As when he was a teenager at 85 and 86 at the Nabisco Masters, the Garden. And the big match, I think, the one you're talking about is uh, I want to talk about, since you uh, brought up Becker, the indoor player. There was a time in 1990 when Becker was ranked two. He reached four finals in three different continents in a span of five weeks. He wins two titles in Sydney and I believe in Stockholm, loses to Lendl in Tokyo 7 6. So that match could have made that. Uh, rivalry six six, <laughs> you know. That's but, amazing. Uh, that's that's an amazing run, though. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, and then uh, then he loses to Edberg, who he had destroyed in Stockholm four love and three. He didn't lose. He gets his leg or something injury pops up. So at three all in the Bercy final, he withdraws. Otherwise, he could have won. Who knows? He could have won the Bercy and could have ended world number one in 1990. I think mathematically he had a shot. But once Edberg won in Bercy it was his ranking to lose. I think Becker had to go undefeated and the the equation was against him. Edberg had to lose before the semis or something. And Becker ended up losing to Agassi in Frankfurt. So, yeah, the, going back to Lendl and Becker rivalry, another fascinating part is they were eight years apart, Mert, and they played some of the biggest matches in Becker's career. And as a yes. fan, I was a fan of both players. I could never enjoy those matches because, you know, at that time, I don't know how invested I am in tennis, but you don't want one guy to keep losing. So Becker is 5-1 in majors. And, and there's a reason that Lendl didn't win Wimbledon. Is one very good reason is Boris Becker, especially their 89 semifinal when Lendl had switched uh, from Adidas to Mizuno rackets. He had skipped uh, 
you know, he has, uh, he hasn't skipped French Open yet, but, you know, he was serving crazy. He was really doing good uh, to, to win that Wimbledon. He was up three love in the semifinal third set. And then the match uh, had a rain delay and the match was already played, I think, on a Saturday because it had rained out completely on Friday after Edberg had beaten McEnroe. So these guys come on Saturday before the women's final. And there was a lot of rain delays and the Graf Navratilova ended up moving for Sunday. So then after the rain break, Lendl had a few questionable calls. Uh, and then I think the match uh, turned in favor of Becker. But uh, to Becker's credit, I think, you know, he kept out of it because Lendl was having a meltdown with the umpire. Becker was down three love. And uh, just to remind uh, listeners, we're talking about 1989 Wimbledon men's semifinals where Boris Becker beat uh, Lendl 6-3 in the fifth. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I think that, that's one. I just wanted that, to remind the, you. No, know. no, yeah. Again, I went on a rant. Thanks for interrupting there. So, yeah, I think that's <laughs> uh, that's one of the big matches they have played. And and then the 91 Australian Open finals also huge when Becker became uh, world number one after missing out on an opportunity in the fall of 1990. He beats Patrick McEnroe in the semis and then he beats Ivan Lendl after losing the first set 6-1 at Flinders Park, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4 and becomes world number one. Okay. And... Uh, and also, oh. on a very side note, parts weighed with ways with Bob Brett a month later after reaching number one and citing some typical Beckeries and all relationships should end on a high. And as a 14-year-old fan, I was saying, what? This coach got you to world number one. That's right. Because, Mart, if anybody knows, like Becker was, it's not, he wasn't coachable after Gunther Bosch. He worked with Frank Dick. He And Frank Dick wasn't a tennis coach. He used to work with a, a British Olympian, Daley Thompson, who was a decade decathlon athlete so i'm reading a newspaper what is this guy doing training with a with a guy who trains sprinters and you know javelin throwers and then finally they got bob brett and they had this amazing run for two and a half years won probably the most titles in his career won the masters won the u.s open won the australian open and then he parts ways so a lot of ways when Djokovic let go of becker in 2016 as a Becker fan, I always thought there was a bit of a karma. Becker wanted to stay, and Djokovic didn't want him to stay. And if I ever had interviewed Becker, I would have brought this question as a comparison. You know, did you feel, you know, life came full circle because the way you and Bob Brett ended, and Bob Brett, the classy guy he is, he never said a word how the partnership ended. And uh, he never, you, yeah, he never. Okay, I see what you're saying. But yes. you would think, right? You know, you are at the top of the world, and you let go of your coach. Yes. I would, that's that's yeah that's a bitter uh I mean, there there has to be more layers to that than than the simple explanation you're right you're and right. that and, and, that, and, then and, and, and the, actually the the next for the next tour and then he goes on a slump the next couple of years right thank you thank you Those so are it's, al- it's almost like uh you know you probably kept asking yourself this question that you just mentioned for the next two years like what what is he thinking you know you may have asked it at the moment he parted ways with bob Brett, but then again the, that question probably kept coming back over the next two years because he went on a big slump. Look, I wanted to do a Boris Becker podcast when I, this thing started in, 90, in 2017. I thought maybe I'll keep doing this. And then, you know, once I got the media credentials, you know, my, my, there was no end game. You know, I, did, I accidentally met you. I accidentally met Andrew and Matt. So it was never an idea to keep this podcast. As a fan, I was living a dream and I wanted to talk to Boris. But now I'm pretty convinced that he'll never come on the podcast. He had a polite decline. I don't know through who, but I reached out and he said, no, he doesn't do podcasts. So I'm spilling out all the questions that I would have saved for him. <laughs> and the Bob Brett question was for him because I wanted to know why, why do you turn that kind of a relationship? And did you regret more importantly, because in 91, 
92 and 93, before the ascent of Sampras, and Agassi wasn't close to being Agassi. You can make an argument, Boris Becker was the best player in the world who didn't lay claim to his throne. And of course, Courier fans will get mad, Edberg fans will get mad. But we are talking about like a guy who had head-to-head dominance against these two guys. Of course, he was never going to dominate Clay, but had Bob Brett stayed and had Becker not been injured, like in 91 US Open, he gets injured against Sasha Volkov. And uh, he's a world number one looking in very good form, sails through the first two rounds and then crashes out because of an injury. So he's also a guy who's perennially injured. And then he's also a guy whose coaching commitments, if I look back as a more informed fan, uh, I want to ask what, what triggered those coaching arrangements. Because he, 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 a good uh, 12, 13 or 14 majors went by, right? During his slump that, uh, that just like you said, had the field a little bit open actually before, uh, before Agassi made his big comeback in, you know, as, as the top player and Sampras uh, reached yeah. his peak years. So, you know, they, he, he could have probably amassed maybe two or three more majors during those years. You know, when, when, when he became number one in 1991. So, so Murd, I'll give you two stats, two famous or infamous Becker stats, more than the clay one, is Becker 3-4 in Wimbledon finals and Boris Becker 3-5 in the World Tour finals. You know, you can't be the best grass court player and you can't be the best indoor player if you have a losing record in those finals. And yeah. the final he lost to Edberg, 3-1, 40-15 up. I mean, you don't lose those finals, a breakup. Right. And I think that's... Uh, that's a big file, I think, which puts him in the same uh, Edberg Villander conversation. Because if you have lived through that era, you had no doubt, you know, he would dominate Max Villander and Stefan Edberg in big matches. You know, yes. and, and he dominated Ivan Lendl, who was the ultimate alpha of that generation, 5-1 in majors. So, yes. you know, look, every, every guy is wired differently. You know, I'm not here to shortchange Edberg. I'm definitely not here to shortchange Villander. They are like exceptional players and every record they own they deserve. That's how tennis works. That's how mm-hmm. sports works. But you can't say much about Edberg that he didn't give all he had. Edberg ran out of fumes when he retired in 96. His second serve was so readable that uh, uh, Bjorkman destroyed him at the 94 US Open. Becker till end of 96 was a force. I don't know what happened in 97. And then he had some injuries in the spring. And then he whispers in Sampras's ear at 97, I'm out. And yeah. it's so funny, like two months prior to that in Hamburg, he said he plans to play two, three more years. So that was such a spontaneous decision when Becker retired. Isn't that, and, uh, isn't that a bit consistent with, the, with how he lived his uh, career, though? That, that, that was spontaneous in the short term, but consistent, consistent in spontaneity with, uh, with the decisions that he, that he takes. Yeah, I'll say something say very juvenile. No, I'll say something very juvenile and immature because I want to answer Becker's <laughs> question as a fan. No, I'm going back 20 years in my knowledge or whenever he retired. I thought you were right, but I always saw it like, you know, it was his show. He just wanted to do on his own things. Like, you know, he, even it was Pete's moment, he retired. You know, it was, it was spontaneous, but I think he just, he just had to say and do things. And, and the biggest regret was in 98, there were rumors he might ask for a wild card. And then in 99, he did ask to come and play one last Wimbledon. So, you know, it was a very knee-jerk kind of a reaction. Yeah. He, he wasn't really fully match fit just to just to just to you know just clear it up for listeners who may not know just talk keeps talking about the 1999 Wimbledon when Becker asks for a wild card and this is after he after two years of no shows in major the last the last major that he played was the 1997 
Wimbledon yeah. where he whispered in Sampras's ear that he that that's it for him. He's not coming back. And so it's not like he played majors in between and came and decided to come back in 1999 to Wimbledon. No, this is just out of nowhere. He comes to Wimbledon and reaches what round? Second. So before I go there, I think in 97, when he whispered to Sampras, he still planned to play the US Open for one last time. That's the time mm-hmm. they launched the new Arthur Ashe Stadium. Uh, on the eve of the draw, again, it was a mouth-watering Becker, Agassi, fourth round. You know, and Agassi was coming from that, you know, like that slump, 140 ranked. And I'm saying, wow, this is another chance to take him out last time, right? I'm happy. And then Becker's agent, I think, died or his, something happened. So he withdrew from the Open on the eve of the tournament. And then Rafter got bumps into the draw as a seed and Rafter wins the Open. Rafter was, you know, of course he was a seed, but Becker was a 12th seed and Rafter, I think, gets to become the 12th seed after Becker's withdrawal. And then he plays like part-time tennis. Nobody knows why is he playing. Of course, fans like myself are still happy he's around, but I'm saying, okay, you can still reach a final here and there. Why aren't you playing majors? And I think in 98 Wimbledon, there was a big, he entered, I think, Queens. He lost in second round to German David Prinsel. I could be wrong. And then there were rumors that he'll, he still had the ranking to get in, but he didn't get in. He didn't ask for to, I think he didn't enter. And in 99, he declared in April that he'll play Wimbledon one last time. And then I have a funny story for you if you want to listen. So I was in college and uh, uh, when he said that, I had student loans, remainder of the student loans in US, you know, I don't know for international listeners. So I had like $2,500 left from my student loan, which I could use towards my living expenses. So I said to my dad, I said, you know what? This is destiny. I'm going to Wimbledon. Becker's playing one last time. He's coming back and I'm happy. I said, look, you know what? Now I have the money, I'll go. And my father said, do whatever you want. And then uh, (laughs) I called this... I called this travel agency, Steve Fergal's travel agency. I didn't know how to buy Wimbledon tickets. You know, it was not like, I didn't know the queue existed. If it, if it did exist, I don't know what the debentures mean. So I said, okay, this is the place to buy Wimbledon tickets. And they said, they'll give you two days Wimbledon package, one day on court two and one day on center court for $2,200 or something. And you'll stay, some breakfast is paid. I'm saying, fine, I've never been to London, I'll go. But now I'm thinking, too, Becker never gets to play on court two. And especially I knew if he's coming one last time, they'll put him on center. So Correct. I kind of said, you know, like that's, that's too much of a risk to go and see. I hate to say, I don't want to go see all this far to see Sampras. I mean, <laughs> Sampras is a great player, but I don't want to spend my student loan money on Pete Sampras. And I said, you know what, I won't go. And of course, as uh, Destiny would punish me, the day <laughs> I was supposed to be on court two, Becker's playing his opening match on court two against Miles McLagan of Great Britain. That's, That's amazing. Op- That's amazing. So, uh, not, <laughs> wow. not for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, it's so. um, the coincidence is amazing. The, the, much to your much to your dismay, I'm sure, but the coincidence is amazing. That because uh, yeah. it makes sense when you said no, I, you know, it's not going to happen. He's not. They're not going to put him on court too. That's that's immediately what I thought too. You know, that's okay. Wow. Of course, and and then and the, it's not an any match. It's like one of the most extraordinary matches. First time in his life. He comes back from two sets down at Wimbledon. First time in his life, he saves two match points at Wimbledon, serves 31 aces, blew a kiss to Miles, you know, was some trash talking. And that was probably, that was the match to be there. And I was yes. watching it on TV and I was just cussing myself for not being there. And then, of course, when, it, when he was down match points, I'm thanking my stars. Thank God I'm not there. And then he <laughs> saves match points. Yeah, I mean, that was a nervous track. But then, yeah, he goes on to lose uh, to Pat Rafter. So, I don't know. Fourth uh, round. He reached the second week. Yeah, Pat Rafter was world number two. And the, and again, Mert, being a Becker apologist I am, it rained for two nonstop days for the fourth round. 
So mm. Becker was really looking good. He took out Hewitt, who was a very informed upcoming teenager, three, two, and three, and had beaten Kiefer. So everybody thought, like the, even the uh, ESPN, I don't know, was it on ESPN? I thought maybe Patrick McEnroe was calling. So they all thought, they all predicted to be a five-setter. But after two days of rain, uh, you know, a lot of pundits said, like, Becker was a part-time player. Of course, it's the same situation for both. He ran out of rhythm. He had no rhythm. He yes. had no serve and Rafter yes. won three, two, and three. Because he bulldozed, he bulldozed over yeah. Kiefer and Hewitt in straight sets. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. And Becker looked like a pale shadow of the man who he used to be, and it was perfect time to leave because Rafter made him look very secondary that day. Just gave yeah. him eight games. Yeah. And that was his last match, correct? Of, of his that was his last match, yeah. yeah. I think it's kind, of, it's kind of fitting because, you know, if he had a good ranking, his last match should have been in Hanover or somewhere, but I think Wimbledon was his home. And he won, He wanted one more time. They gave him center court, three out of four matches. I think that was a good end. Okay, so Saki, we, we talked earlier about his rivalries with uh, Agassi and um, and uh, Lendl. And I, I, I should have mentioned this. I guess I forgot. But uh, his, you know, there's also this rivalry uh, with his compatriot, Mikhail Stich, that, uh, that, he, that Becker had that had that was high in the tension barometer from what I hear, but you would know a lot more about that than I, than I do. So if you could just bring that into to the conversation, perhaps, because I know they won the gold at, in the Olympics, but surely they didn't have a brother relationship, correct? How, how, and how did that, how did that personal uh, tension uh, impact their, uh, their rivalry on the court? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a question not to be missed. And because if you ask Becker, you know, if you wake him up, I believe he's still going to say the most painful loss is the 91 Wimbledon final because he lost to a German compatriot who, again, who was not a nobody. He reached the French semis coming in. So Michael Schick had a huge game. He took out Edberg two days prior to beating Becker. But I think that straight set loss and Becker having his biggest meltdown in center court, talking to himself, crying out loud and doing whatever, you know, like because he just couldn't find his game and Steak outclassed him four, six and four. So... But that was not the end of it. That's when it started because, you know, Boris Becker was still 21. He was still uh, 23. He was still in the absolute prime of his abilities. And uh, rest again, I wish this happened today in the age of Twitter and all the access we have, you would have known a lot more details. But they were just not in good terms, uh, to put it mildly. And then the biggest highlight when you talk about Becker and Steak is a Wimbledon final. And then it's also them teaming up, te- teaming up uh, last minute to go win the Olympic gold in, in Barcelona on clay. Uh, and the story I remember clearly, I can't find much uh, uh, much clippings. I Google for it because I know you you may ask this question. The best uh, clipping is in your head, Saki. You'd remember Yeah, yeah but like I mean, I, I don't want someone like, you know, who's a bigger historian than you and I and just, you know, <laughs> come back and say, you know, you're making this up. But so, yeah, I think uh, it was last minute they decided to go. And then there was more drama Becker decides to you know come there, and after two days he moves out of the Olympic Village. He wants to stay in a seven-star hotel somewhere or whatever, right? The luxury lifestyle. So, so even as a team, they were like you know I think they were very professional. They got along, but they were just there for the gold, and they got it on clay because Becker lost to I think Mark Rosse, I think in the third round uh, in five sets, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I could be wrong on singles. So yeah, that was his only chance, and they both capitalized. But what? What the biggest? Did, sorry, sorry, let me let me get back to one small detail you said there. They stayed in the Olympic uh, 
village and Becker moved out to a hotel. Is that, did I hear that? Yeah, correct? not that they were roommates, but I think uh, there was an Olympic village because that's the whole experience. Right, so I remember right. Becker moving out. That was a big deal. Okay. And, and Mer, like anyone who's listening to this, the Becker coverage in India, because, you know, India kind of, uh, at least you think my ecosystem was living in New Delhi, reading all these English newspapers and sports magazines. Becker, Graf and Edberg, and then Andre Agassi took the sport to a different level in India. Mm-hmm. It was just a sport that everybody wanted to talk about. And Becker was this guy, like, you know, they would write like articles, which may sound silly. Like, you know, he's a philosopher king, prince of passion, all that like cheesy headlines yeah. in nice, <laughs> nice cover story magazines with decent writers who have a great command of the knowledge of English and sport. Becker cover stories were just huge, you know, especially, you know, uh, he was also press darling. He would say, you know, a lot of stuff in press, like, you know, the famous quote, I lost a match, not a war. Then he had a famous quote about Lendl. They say, compare yourself to Lendl. He said, Lendl loves to beat people one and two. I can beat you four and five and still get the job done. So I'm more human, you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so my he, word. Yeah. He, he did say a lot of stuff like that, you know, and that used to make headlines. But going back to Michael Steak and sticking with the question, the biggest side, uh, biggest casualty of this relationship was Germany could have been a Davis Cup powerhouse. You know, they could have won more because Becker in his best years won Davis Cup single-handedly with the likes of Carl, Charlie Steve and Eric Yellen and uh, some other Germans. He was the alpha player and he beat Sweden, who were, you know, who were the biggest tennis uh, nation in the 80s. So he beat them once in Sweden on indoor clay and then once on carpet in Germany he defended. So when Stieg came, you know, I'm not German, but I was thinking, you know, more Davis Cup for Becker. So I said, yeah, if these guys played together, they would win more. And then Becker had a very strained relationship with Stieg and... I don't know if Nikki Pilic was in charge with the German Davis Cup. He would play one round, then sit out the next. They would get knocked out and vice versa. And in one year, Becker played, Steak was injured. So in 95, I think both men kind of grew, uh, grew up professionally and kind of put all their egos behind. And they should have won the Davis Cup, but I think they lost a very anticlimactic loss to Russia in the semis. And then we all know Sampras' heroics in Moscow that year. So mm-hmm. it would have been very interesting where U.S. if Germany and U.S. have played. So they lost that match. I think, I think Becker got injured in a doubles match, and they lost the doubles in five. And then he couldn't take the court for the Ostik couldn't take the reverse single. So I think Kafelnikov, sorry, Chesnokov and team edged them out, and Cherkasov edged them out three two. And then okay. you know they hosted the final. So yeah, it's a very, it's a very uh, ironic rivalry. And then I had the honor of meeting Michael Ostik on his inauguration. He's a nice, super nice guy. Again. I, I was there in the capacity of press, so I'm not going to say he's going to be an a-hole. But yeah, he just seemed like a very approachable star, very articulate, friendly guy. And on a on a podcast with John Wertheim leading up to his nomination, John Wertheim asked him, what is your relationship with BB? And they both had a laugh. Like, you know, there was a lot, it's a loaded question. And yeah. Steek said, well, I mean, you know, we were never friends. Now we don't play. Our paths do cross because Steek was running the Hamburg tournament then. And Boris Becker was involved in Eurosport commentary so i'm sure they did cross paths but uh yeah the answer was like very political and diplomatic but dust dust has settled i think they both kind of realized like they could have done more for german tennis like in terms of davis cup right. but they both had great careers and uh, yeah that 91 wimbledon final and the olympic goal is kind of the highlight uh, if you yes. look at becker Steak. okay interesting interesting yes yes Sakib, this is this is fascinating. There are a lot of little anecdotes here that uh, you know I, I sometimes pride myself in knowing the past very well. But uh, I knew that if uh, we had you as the expert 
for the Boris Becker show that uh, you would come up with many, many things that that uh, that would leave my mouth gaping open. So this is definitely happening. I'm so glad we're doing this. Is there anything that uh, anything else about um, any highlights in his career that does not get talked about often that comes to your mind other than the ones that we've uh, that you've already mentioned? Like, like I said, you know, if we were, if we didn't know the big three existed, if, you know, if the year is, say, 2000, I think this career looks a very, very special career and it's still very recent. You can talk about, of course, you can argue. I can see a lot of guys will say, no, this doesn't make sense what you're saying. But, you know, that's what sporting narrative debates are. But big three with the addition of Andy Murray, they've just thrown out the record book. So if you don't look those guys, one of Becker's record, which I thought would have been untouchable was, which I already mentioned in 93, had he qualified for the World Tour Finals, that would have been 13 straight years. But he didn't yeah, do it. Wow. And he himself said, he said, I'm very disappointed when he couldn't make the cut. He said, this, this would have been something, you know, a, a record that could have, you know, stood the test of time. And of course, in 94, he qualified 95 events, 96, he qualifies three more times. That would have been the 11th year or 10th year. So I think that's one record. And, and a lot of time his season came to life indoors because he has won 26, I think, titles indoors. He's won Stockholm, which used to be a very important tournament. He won Bercy three times. He would just win these tournaments, Tokyo, Sydney indoors. And he would always measure up against the likes of Pete Sampras, who arguably is the greatest indoor player to many. And, of and course, he stood up. Uh, so go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, he, they, I think they are six, six indoors. Yeah, and uh, you know, and uh, the, or six. Sorry, there's six, seven. Becker's up, and but Becker never beat Sampras outside of an indoor court. Outside of indoors, Sampras is six love, uh, but indoors, mm. Boris Becker is seven six. And wow. there are a lot of lot of close matches, and mm. he used to famously muscle these you know big backhand serves into his backhand into like the court. He would block those returns. Yeah, his returns would, were 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 very underrated. Yeah, very strong, I mean, very strong. He would guy, take like, them early. Yeah. He would take the ball early. You're correct. Couple of okay, so it, uh, unless you have uh, one or two more things to say about uh, what's uh, highlights in his career that that doesn't get talked about often, I had a couple of last second questions. Sure, for you. yeah. Okay, please go ahead. Now, many people don't know this, but you know, many people know that Becker always played with the Puma racket, uh, correct? But uh, but in in his early years, he actually played with what racket? I think for people who don't know that, this would be a nice surprise. It was to me when I saw it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take the ownership of this. I found this on my book, and I I think you had mentioned this. So Becker, as a junior, was playing the same Adidas racket that Lendl used to play with. Yes, and And in his first Wimbledon, correct? He played with it in his first Wimbledon also in I think so, I think so, you're right, yeah. yeah. Because I have a picture of of him from Roland Garros, you know, when he was a young, lanky teenager, you know, and he had the Adidas racket in his hand. I think I even shared this on Twitter in the early pandemic. Yeah. Because you I find that not. so hard to believe. That w- that yeah. racket seems to me like it would be a very difficult racket to play with for a serving volleyer. You know, yeah. that uh, Adidas Ivan Lendl racket at that time. But yet he and did. He, mm-hmm. And even the Puma racket, I remember reading somewhere like in, I think, 89, I think, or 88. Puma shut down their tennis. Uh, please don't hold me accountable on the date. So I think 89 late 89, and they shut down the tennis operations and they gave Boris Becker the remaining 200 rackets. And then he partnered with, I think, Japanese firm Estuza, which also sponsored Connors. So it was the same Puma racket, but with the Estuza paint job. Hmm. And, and first thing when I did, when I came to US, I had a job as a part-time student. I saved, I think, what, $199 and I got a money order. I didn't have a credit card. And I sent to Hollabird <laughs> Sports and I still have the Estuza racket. Wow. I, I bought it, yeah. 
Wow. And, and I played with it. I played with it uh, in, in the UMass Lowell courts. These are the years of Sampras. Everybody would stop me and say, what racket is that? That looks yeah. so old. Because that was an racket from the old, early 80s. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sampras, yes, yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah, because small Sampras, head, very small, small head. head. Yeah. yeah, 86 head size and very heavy. And Sampras was playing with pro staff. Agassi was playing with Donne or Head. Chang was playing with Prince. Rafter was playing with Prince. So everywhere I go, people used to ask me for my racket. They said, what is this racket? <laughs> and then th- there was no power. So, Mert, I had yeah. a very good cross-court forehand, but I, I lose my shoulder if I try to hit with it today. Yes. <laughs> Jimmy Connors uh, played with a teacher. He was probably the only guy you could say maybe was more of an outlier than the, than that racket. Yeah. No, and, I think uh, all, all the rackets, even Lenders Arida's racket, I can't even imagine what that racket was. So, yeah, you're right. Oh, yes. Anything before Becker, I mean, those rackets were like, whew. Yeah. You could, I mean, today's guys could do weights with those rackets. I mean, that's how heavy those guys, those rackets <laughs> yeah. were. Yeah. But, uh, okay, so speaking of eras and changes, you know, Beb, would you say that Becker is a good example to give if you wanted to talk about how different grass courts were back then in the 80s and 90s compared to today? I mean, a guy like Becker with a big serve, not necessarily the best skills at the net, but good skills, solid skills. Like you said, uh, your, your sentence was very um, accurate. You know, he, is a, he was a serve and volley. That was more of a serve than volley. Mm. And, uh, but but a, just a hard hitter. It, with today's grass courts, would he have had as much uh, uh, success in today's grass court events as he did back then? Not not taking out not taking into account the rivalries or the the, the other players. You know, the, the, we're not talking in terms of Edberg, Edberg, Lendl, Agassi, and Sampras back then, or 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 Roger, Rafa, and Novak today. No, just his, his game. Do you think it would have been a, he would have, it would have been a good example to give just to describe how much grass has changed? It's a very tough question, especially answering in your presence. Uh, okay, I'll take an attempt. So for me, I think. You know, when we even talk about Nadal, right? How Nadal has learned to move on grass, you know, and even though grass has changed, it's still super fast. Yeah, people say it doesn't play. Yeah, it, it bounces high, but it's still fast. And uh, he found a way to make five Wimbledon finals, right? A lot of people doubted Djokovic in the beginning that, you know, his game is not for grass. You know, he slips too much. And look what he's done at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an element, and I'm not mentioning Federer because Federer has always played good at Wimbledon, so that's a given. But I think Nadal and Djokovic had doubters that they would play well at Wimbledon. So I think Becker's track record, who knows how he would have fared. One thing that has changed is you know more than I do. All these guys are better movers, better athletes. So Becker, even in his era, wasn't like the greatest of, you know, he, he played a lot of matches. He never tanked matches like he never was cramping. But he wasn't a mover like these guys, eh? like like a, like a Murray is, or like you know, like Medvedev is moving. Yeah, you but know, Saki, a... you you said this before too, which which I find uh, quite surprising. I th- I thought Becker was quite quite athletic in his in his best days, but his first yeah, he step, was, but... you know, his his lunging, his first steps were were fantastic. I thought, but, no, may, but... maybe you're talking in terms of like a running side to side. Yeah, exactly. Calls? That's what okay. tennis is. And thank yes. you for reading my mind. So I was going to say that, but my big but was. Like look at Anz Jabeur, right? How she did well at Wimbledon, right? So Becker was very instinctive. I still think Edberg would always live at the net. Like third rally, he would come at the net. You know that is backhand. Same with Rafter. They could rally at the net. But I think Becker's, I think big strength was the instinct. Like the slice, when to come on the net, when to short slice. Because he played more with the short slice 
than a Stefan Edberg or than a Pat Rafter because they were more traditional warriors. So was Pat Cash mm-hmm. or Paul Anacon. So I've noticed a lot of time Becker would just chip charge or like in a rally he would break rhythm. So I think that to me is intangible, invaluable, intangible on grass. Like if he was playing here, he would still know his way, way around. And and there was also sh- an open face short forehand volley that he would just tap like this. It wasn't a traditional volley like when you come under the wall. No, you just right. Go over he the would tilt his wrist back. Yeah. 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 So I think he, I would still think he would be a second week player, but it's very hard to say how he would do it with Djokovic or Federer or Nadal or Murray. Because these mm-hmm. guys are playing a different ball. Of but course. Then, of course. But then I'm a firm believer: if there was no Becker or Lendl, they would no they they would not be a Federer. You know, because this part of evolutionary arc, they all had to come at certain eras for the other guy to come. It's like mm-hmm. a baton that's passed. And tomorrow we may have someone who moves better than Djokovic. It's hard to imagine who may slide better than Djokovic, right? Mm-hmm. So, sure. I but I, yeah, I don't know. Right. I mean, if, if you want to take it as a chain, right? You could always say, well, there was Lendl, then Becker got the best of Lendl. If we're talking in terms of you know grass court tennis and fast court tennis, then came Sampras, who got the best, better of uh, Becker, and then we could say, okay, Roger Federer came along, and then Rafael Nadal came over. Roger Federer and then came Novak. So, uh, you know, it's, it's like who, who can do better, correct, as the years go by. And uh, who knows, you know, some, someone else will come along and just like you say, will supplant uh, Novak, you know, as the better player. That so, was kind of your, your, uh, your train of thought, I thought. Yeah, I think that was a train of thought. And uh, if you had said if uh, all the guys, you know, are transported in, into this era playing on the lawns, then I would said, would have said Lendl would have won Wimbledon because, you know, the courts are playing more to a baseliners. And, right. But then then Becker would have stayed on the baseline too. Then I think Edberg would have been at a disadvantage if all those guys were playing in this time, even with the same rackets, because you can't come to the net that much. Mm-hmm. And Edberg and Pat Cash would have been at a disadvantage. And I think guys like Becker and Steek would have still found a way to sneak out Wimbledon titles. To adapt, yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Sakib, wonderful chat. Thank you very much. This, uh, th- this was, I hope, very uh, as uh, pleasant for listeners as it, as it was for me to participate in. And uh, once again, I thank you for your time. And uh, thanks for the nuanced, in-depth answers. And uh, I will definitely go back and watch a couple of Becker matches now in the, in the upcoming days when I can find the time because this talk with you inspired me to revisit some of those, uh, some of those matches that I may not have seen in in a couple of decades but uh unless you have something else to add i'm going to go ahead and call uh call today but did you have anything more to add to this boris becker uh no i just wanted to say one more thing which i couldn't add is uh i think some of his best tennis was played as world number two i think i might have said that but i think he before nadal or Djokovic came you could have make made a case becker was the best world number two of all time you Mm -hmm. can go and look at the stats the tail end of 86 when he became i think he became world number two for the first time on, in October somewhere mm-hmm. and then he again became world number two in 88, 89 and 90 till he became number one so those years with Bob Brett were some of his best tennis mm-hmm. and uh, when he became number one I think yeah that's when the downward spiral started and you know all the inconsistencies and injuries and the other thing was coaches all over the world were saying why is he playing from baseline when he should go more to the net I think the stubbornness also destroyed him I remember reading Nick Bolletary like he said when he was coaching Becker he said players like him Stubbornness is a two-sided coin. It's also for greatness, but it also destroys you because you know you have such a huge ego, such a huge confidence. And I think a lot of times he spent way too much time on the baseline in the early '90s when he could have mm-hmm. been just 
telling himself like Edberg, this is the way I have to make my living. Yeah. So you think that as, as the world number two, um, he, as, as good as he was as the world number two, when he did reach the top, you know, number one, that he failed to stay in the long term there, like, like this big three did during their, during their times. Because once Rafa was a great number two, but then once he reached number one, he was able to come back to it again and stay there a while. And same with Novak, you know, when he finally reached that number one, he was able to stay there for a long time. Uh, so is, uh, you think that his stay at number one was too short? I think so. It's only for, a, for a guy of his yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. 12 weeks. Because, you know, Safin is nine or 11 weeks, but Safin danced to a different week. Becker wanted tennis. Becker wanted to win. Becker was a serious player. But I think overall his preparation or injuries or, you know, he has a lot going in his personal life too. And I don't know how much of that attributed, you know, the court cases with the German authorities, the tax evasion and, you know, all that stuff was happening. And plus he was more of an emotive guy. I wouldn't compare his desire to the big three, but I would say that desire is only, I think, what big three has shown week in, week out. That desire only belongs to Lendl, maybe Sampras. It's not for anyone from that era, but mm -hmm. uh, Becker could have done more, I think, as the world number one. Even he knows that, what Edberg did and what Courier did. You know, with his caliber, he shouldn't be ranked world number one for 12 weeks. That's, that's a big no-no. But then yeah. if you look at 89, he was clearly the best player winning Wimbledon and US Open and Lendl is world number one. So, right. you know, that's how sometimes the ranking goes. And I respect the rankings, no matter who's at the receiving end. It's a computer race from January to November. It's not about who wins the most majors. It's about that's who gets true. the most points. That's true. That's true. Okay. All right, everyone. I hope uh, you all enjoyed this, this podcast. And uh, Sakib, I enjoyed being in your seat. For, uh, for, for once, but I still think you do a much better job. So I'll be looking forward to the next time you're back in your regular host seat and, uh, and listen to your wonderful conversations with your guests. But um, thank you very much for this insight into, uh, into Boris Becker's game, for your fountain of knowledge when it comes to his career. And, uh, and it's always nice to hear that from, from someone with that much knowledge who was also a fan of the player, but who's able to look back years later and talk about him in a very objective way. And, uh, you know, also talking about not just his accomplishments, but also his, uh, his shortcomings. And we wanted to keep it limited to his tennis playing career because um, nowadays, over the last uh, decade or so, all you see when you look, when you look up news on, about Becker is his bankruptcy situation, his financial troubles, et cetera. And uh, his playing years are actually under-mentioned you know, for, for a number of years now. So we thought it'd be a good idea to do this. Sakib, thank you for this idea also. And uh, un uh, unless there's uh, something oh. you want to add, I'm going to wrap it up. No, I think I just want to thank you for doing this. I think, uh, I don't know about you, uh, me being a better host, but you definitely are a better guest. Uh, I, have to, <laughs> I have to edit this show carefully and then decide if I should even release this because I think I ranted a lot, but... <laughs> no, no. But, the, 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 do not deprive your uh, tennis with an accent listeners of this podcast you did this was a wonderful uh one. Okay. thank you very much i have much. to be i have to be, i have to be mightily drunk to release this but yeah i'll, I'll probably okay. edit this later tonight <laughs> and then release this and thank you okay. Mert, for doing this thank you for, okay. for this uh, to this torture of boris becker yeah but uh no 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 okay thank you and uh and uh, and, uh we'll see you next time everyone take care